This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. All right. Super. Uh, again, welcome. I'm Rich Moore. I'm the director of the RAND Washington office. And, and on behalf of RAND, welcome all to, to everyone uh, here tonight. I want to uh, offer a special welcome to our alum, both our RAND uh, Alumni Association members, as well as our Purdue uh, Pardee RAND uh, uh, alumni. So tonight we are privileged uh, and honored to have two of RAND's most distinguished leaders uh, for our speakers uh, tonight. They're going to talk to us about RAND's strategic rethink project. Andy Hohen is our Senior Vice President for Research and Analysis. Before that, he was the Director of RAND Project Air Force. Before he joined RAND, he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy. Ambassador Jim Dobbins is a Senior Fellow at, uh, at RAND, and he's RAND's Distinguished Chair in Diplomacy and Strategy. For several years, from 2002 to 2013, he was the director of RAND's International Security and Defense Policy Center. And then he left RAND for a time. He went to join the Obama administration. He was uh, President Obama's special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. And, he, and subsequently, he returned uh, to, uh, to RAND. Now, before I turn it over to these gentlemen, I'd like to say just a couple of words about uh, RAND's strategic uh, rethink project. RAND launched this project when RAND's leadership recognized that it would be helpful to apply RAND's objective and um, multidisciplinary approach to research to some of the more, the, the larger, more strategic um, issues and questions and challenges related to um, America's role in in the uh, troubled um, world that we live in today. Now, the, the findings that they have, um, have uh, are, are objective, they're evidence-based, uh, and they offer an opportunity for, to, to enhance and advance the dialogue, uh, even in the electoral debate and uh, discussions that are ongoing today. This project was uh, supported uh, in part by generous donations of um, many different RAND donors through RAND's um, investment in people and ideas program. In fact, RAND's very fortunate to have uh, donors, uh, many different donors, including many of you who contribute to research, important research in many different ways. So whether you all donate through, for example, the RAND Alumni um, Impact Fund or uh, through, say, a grant to Party RAND Graduate School, uh, it advances not only RAND's reach, but uh, RAND's impact. And so on behalf of RAND, I want to say thank you for that. Also, um, if you did contribute to through the uh, uh, Alumni Impact Fund, I'd like to remind you that the ballot for the next set of projects, it'll be coming out soon. We're just finalizing the, uh, the projects that are on that. It'll be out soon, and so we encourage you to watch for that and then vote when that does come out. So that should be out soon. So with that, I think I'll turn it over to Andy and Jim. Thank you, Rich. I'm Andy Hohen from RAND. Uh, Ambassador Jim Dobbins here. 
and we, as Rich said, we've been working on this strategic rethink project for uh, some time now. Jim was the author of the lead volume, Choices for America. You saw copies of it out there. And what we thought we'd do tonight is I'll begin with a few questions for Jim that draw on the volume, some other things that, uh, that uh, he has done here. And then we'll open it up to your questions. Um, if you've had a chance to look at the volume, you'll see it's quite wide-ranging. Wide this is choices for the next leader, choices for the next president. So it ranges from the global economy to national security issues to regional issues and so forth. Um, and so really interesting, and I think Jim did just a wonderful job. I'm going to begin with one place, Jim, and that is a simple question. Is the world falling apart? <laughs> you know... I think there is a general perception that the world has become more complex, more challenging, more demanding, more threatening, less organized. Um, uh, there are various causes that are attributed to this, um, the weakness of nation states, the uh, impact of the internet uh, uh, and modern communications and travel, um, the growth of non-state actors, uh, both benign and hostile. Um, uh, I tend to think that this... Um, uh, that that this argue, that this the the view that the world is now more difficult, more challenging, more threatening than it has been for most of the last century is very exaggerated, um, uh, and I think it uh, uh, it stems from several things. First of all, I think people are generalizing from what they see in the Middle East. So all of those things are true about the Middle East. You know, states are crumbling, uh, non-state actors are increasingly threatening. Um, uh, not only uh, the, the populations of the states where they're operating, but more generally. Um, uh, uh, and, and you are definitely seeing an erosion of, the, uh, uh, of a global norm-based order in the Middle East. But let's remember that the Middle East is not the first region that's gone through one of these tumultuous uh, periods. Um, uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, most of East Asia went through a period uh, with a communist uh, uh, insurgency that took over all of China. Uh, then the civil wars that took over most of uh, uh, most of uh, Southeast Asia. Um, uh, in the in the uh, 70s and 80s, you had half a dozen civil wars that were operating in this hemisphere in places like El Salvador and Colombia and Peru and Nicaragua. Um, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, you had um, uh, the collapse of Yugoslavia and uh, a series of civil wars in the Balkans. Um, uh, uh, all of those regions are now relatively peaceful. All of those states have been put back together. Um, and I think the Middle East is going through a, a similar tumultuous period and will, uh, and I think, in, uh, emerge at, on the other side of it at some point. So the good news is that this is not a, a, a portent of a global disorder, and it's not going to go on forever in the Middle East. The bad news is it's going to go on for a while yet, um, uh, and, and its end is not imminent. Um, I, I think people uh, tend to uh, you know, regard the Cold War as threatening but fairly simple, and I think, again, that's an, that's mm -hmm. an oversimplification. If you think of the the... the the challenges that the Truman administration faced in the aftermath of the Second World War with far more refugees and displaced persons than we have today. I mean, like a factor of 10 times more just in Europe of people who were moving, who were traveling, who didn't have a home, uh, who were in refugee camps. 
um, uh, it, 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 the, the challenges um, of uh, reestablishing some kind of order, reconstructing uh, not only our allies but our enemies. Um, uh, then uh, the, the next couple of decades where nearly 100 new countries were born, many of them as the result of insurgencies and civil wars, um, uh, and, uh, and the challenges that decolonization and the East-West competition created within that whole, uh, whole sphere of Africa and much of Asia. Um, uh, I, I think the, the complexities of that period and the variety of challenges really weren't very different from what we face today. Um, I do think that, uh, that, in, that the pace of diplomacy and the pace of change has changed somewhat, that the instantaneous nature of communications and the fact that, that, that uh, um, text, vo uh, voice, and even uh, visual communications essentially are completely free um, you can talk to anybody in the world. You can see anybody in the world anytime you want, and it doesn't cost anything. I mean, this is this is a pretty significant acceleration in um, the way events are communicated, uh, and and it does put pressure on governments to respond more quickly and perhaps with less reflection than would have been the case when communications were were slower. So I think it. I, I think you do have that effect, but again, there's a perception that. Uh, you know, technology is accelerating change. But again, if you look at the technologies that have been introduced since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, what you actually find is most of those earlier technologies had far more transformative effects. Uh, they, they increased the productivity of individuals much more than the Internet and computers have. Um, the things like the steam engine, um, telephones, radio, telegraph, uh, railroads, steamships, airplanes, um, uh, these have had a much larger effect on the economy. Uh, introduction of things like nuclear weapons have had much greater effect on um, the nature of conflict um, than anything that's occurred in the last several decades. So, so I do think that these perceptions are a, a little exaggerated, which is not to say we don't face some new challenges. I think most people today particularly most younger people, don't even remember the Cold War. They certainly don't remember anything that preceded the Cold War. Um, uh, and what they remember is the 1990s, which were, you know, the world's only superpower. Um, uh, uh, all our enemies had turned into friends. Um, uh, we, uh, we had to deal at most with uh, disorder in very, small, uh, uh, in very small places like Haiti or Somalia or, or, or Bosnia or Kosovo. You know, none of which had more than three or four million people, um, uh, as opposed to much larger states like Afghanistan or Syria or the ones we're dealing with today that are ten times bigger and, and therefore do pose challenges. So we're out of the post-Cold War era of being the world's only superpower with no challenges. Um, and yeah, the world's certainly more complex and demanding than it was 15 years ago. But, uh, but if you look at the sweep of the 20th century, we're living at a time when we're safer than at almost any time in the last century, uh, and we're more prosperous than we were at any time in the last century. So, um, my advice is, you know, uh, you know, get over this pessimism and exaggerated concerns. So let's come back to the region that is in disorder, though, and the Middle East. And I believe I've heard you say elsewhere, Jim, that. Uh, Ending the fighting in Syria really is our preeminent goal. 
more important goal than removing Assad, more important goal than, uh, than defeating ISIS, at least in the immediate period. So what are our choices in Syria, and how do we think about that now with Russia's growing involvement, and what should we be doing to help bring an end to the fighting there? Well, our policy, you know, our policy in Syria has been one of opposing the government and opposing the government's principal opponent, um, and, uh, uh, and not doing enough to defeat either. Um, uh, and, and the effect has been uh, of our role, as, as is the role of many other external states, has been to essentially prolong the conflict. Um, uh, if you look at the conflict, it is the sort of epicenter of this disordered region um, from which um, uh, uh, refugees uh, and violent extremists are, are spilling out and spreading. Uh, uh, the, the, the refugees are uh, destabilizing uh, some of our closest allies in Europe uh, and the European Union, which is a construction that the United States has played a, an important role in creating and sustaining over the last 60 years. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and, of course, the violent extremists uh, are not only uh, uh, spreading from Syria into adjoining states and, and states that are further uh, afield, like um, uh, Libya, for instance, but are also inspiring um, uh, uh, similar imitative acts in, uh, in countries as distant as the United States and, uh, and Western Europe. So I do think that uh, ending the conflict in Syria is a necessary prerequisite to settling the region as a whole. Um, uh, and I do think that um, uh, that we do have to choose um, uh, between um, our uh, conflicting objectives with respect to Syria. Um, uh, it, I, I published with uh, some colleagues here at RAND and the Council on Foreign Relations a paper recently that, uh, that suggested uh, how we might go about uh, 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 pacifying Syria, if you will. Um, the 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 effort at the time we wrote was to first try to get a political settlement among at least the more moderate of the contending factions, and on that basis, uh, and uh, get a ceasefire and end the fighting, at least among those who were willing to join a mutual accommodation. Um, uh, and a prerequisite for that was the departure of Assad. Uh, uh, we recommended that whether Assad stays or goes should be, uh, uh, should be a matter of expediency. Whichever would uh, yield peace more quickly ought to be our preference, um, uh, rather than making it a precondition. We also argued that um, we should start with a ceasefire, not a political settlement, that a political settlement was out of reach for the time being, and that the best you could do would be a ceasefire in place. Um, uh, and then try to work on a political settlement, knowing that might take several years. Um, uh, uh, we also argued that, um, uh, that, that the ceasefire wouldn't uh, hold unless there was some external, um, uh, external guarantor and referee that stepped in and enforced the ceasefire. Uh, now, the normal uh, approach in a conflict situation would have been to deploy a UN peacekeeping force to play that role, and that's been successful in a dozen or more countries over the last 
uh, decade or so. But uh, Syria is too violent, uh, too conflicted, too complex for a standard UN peacekeeping force to play that kind of role. Uh, and it certainly wouldn't get any volunteers among those who usually co contribute contingents. And so what we, what we said in this piece was that, um, that the only countries that are going to take the risks uh, and costs involved in trying to oversee uh, a, a settlement in Syria are the countries that are already exacerbating the conflict by, uh, uh, by siding, by, by uh, supporting one side or the other. And we therefore recommended that Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, uh, Jordan, the United States um, collaborate essentially in getting a ceasefire in place and then ensuring that our, rel our respective proxies adhere to the ceasefire and deploying forces as necessary in the areas that are friendly to us, not in the areas that are hostile to us, in order to ensure that those clients, proxies, whatever you want to call them, actually do adhere to the ceasefire. Now, I think the administration has, since we wrote, changed, adopted the first half of this, that is to, to prioritize the ceasefire, leaving the political solution for a second stage. Um, uh, and they've moved a little bit in the sense that the U.S. and, and the Russians are collaborating and monitoring the <coughs> ceasefire, but I don't think we've gone to the stage of actually assuming responsibility for enforcing it yet. And I think we may have to have a breakdown uh, and a resumption of fighting before people get desperate enough to take that last step. Great. Thank you, Jim. Why don't we turn, take you in a little different direction, and let's talk for a moment about Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, Rand recently put out a report about uh, the the vulnerability of the Baltic states. Uh, it's received a lot of attention in terms of the threats that uh, Russia could pose there. We have Russia involvement in, uh, in the Middle East, and you've been talking about that. And of course, we have the situation in Ukraine. Um, this particular volume highlights some choices that we have with regard to Ukraine, with regard to Russia, and so forth. I'd, I think we'd be, you know, we'd welcome your views on how you would start to unpack this and have us think about those various pieces. Well, the volume it sets out another uh, in the Ukraine, another area where there's some sort of cognitive dissonance in American policy. So our policy is that Ukraine should be free to choose its alliances and its alignment, uh, and it shouldn't be under any external compulsion. So we're insisting on its right to join NATO and the European Union, even though NATO and the European Union are not going to allow it to join. Um, uh, uh, the... Uh, the choice, it seems to me, given uh, Russia's clear first uh, um, uh, military um, superiority in the immediate periphery, on its immediate periphery, and secondly, its uh, strong opposition to uh, Ukraine that became a full member of NATO and the European Union, um, the choice is either to see Ukraine divided between a Western part that's aligned with the West and an Eastern part that essentially is, uh, is aligned with Russia, um, uh, effectively accepting the partition of the country and, uh, and a frozen conflict, um, or uh, try to promote uh, the idea of a Ukraine that uh, accepts uh, its role as a buffer state, as a neutral, in the way that Sweden and Finland and Austria accepted that condition during uh, throughout the Cold War, 
uh, and were able to trade and uh, have good relations with East and West alike. Um, now, in terms of uh, uh, the studies we've done, they have tended to focus not just on Ukraine, of course, but mm -hmm, also mm -hmm. on the threat that Russia would pose Correct. more generally to, for instance, the Baltic states, which are NATO members to which we are committed to defend. Uh, and there we've done, I think, half a dozen fairly substantial studies here at RAND, um, uh, including a lot of wargaming um, and uh, examination of the of the challenges we would face in defending uh, a NATO territory adjacent to Russia, particularly the Baltic states, um, and uh, uh, and uh, and clearly there is a dilemma here and a set of choices. Um, uh, the, the Baltic states are indefensible on the basis of their own capabilities. They're too small and mm -hmm. too weak, mm -hmm. too close to Russia, um, and too far away from the centers of Western power. Um, uh, you could deploy forces forward to make them more defensible. That would require very substantial deployments uh, that might exacerbate relations with Russia and, and, and make the situation more volatile rather than less. Uh, and it would essentially tie those forces down permanently. Um, uh, it would be like, like the forces in Korea. Once you put them there, you'd never be able to get them out. Mm -hmm. If you suddenly had a crisis in the Middle East, you can't tell the Balkans, well, yes, they're here to protect you, but sorry, we're going to have to go to Afghanistan for five years. We'll come back, maybe. Um, uh, and, so, uh, and so these are the dilemmas that we've highlighted. Um, different projects come to different conclusions about what the choices should be. Um, but, um, uh, and these are dilemmas that I think the next administration are going to have to face and make some difficult decisions. Okay, let me drag you over to Asia then. The volume does spend some time about our options vis-a-vis -vis China. Of course, we have China, which is this prominent role in the global economy. At the same time, we're seeing a slowdown in the Chinese economy. Uh, along with that, we've been seeing this buildup uh, in China's own military, uh, fortifying islands in the South China Sea, making improvements in various technologies, and so forth. You talk about different kinds of options here, whether to include or exclude China in terms of our overall approach to, uh, to global politics and the global economy. Could you illustrate a little bit more about what you mean by including and, or excluding? Well, I think China and Russia both fall in the category of what I think are currently called frenemies. That is, they're essential partners in some spheres, and they're, in the case of Russia, hostile opponents, and in the case of China, potentially hostile opponents in other spheres. Um, uh, the, 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 this dilemma is more acute with respect to Russia, um, uh, but uh, China is the more potent uh, of the two, um, the one that uh, over the longer term presents a, a, a greater challenge. Uh, but China is, is also, by reason of its, uh, uh, of its size and strength, uh, a more essential partner. Uh, we, could get to, we could get along without Russia on most issues, um, but on uh, broad issues like, for instance, global warming, for one, um, we couldn't possibly get along without Chinese cooperation. Um, uh, other areas are nuclear proliferation. China, as well as Russia, were very helpful in negotiating the compact with Iran. China has just significantly stepped up sanctions on North Korea. Um, 
Uh, now, in terms of inclusion or exclusion, I think this has to do with the structures of international finance mm -hmm. and economics. Um, uh, these organizations like the IMF, um, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the World Trade Organization, were, cre were essentially Western institutions which have gradually been extended to non-Western countries, uh, including China. Their governance structures were designed at a time when the United States and Europe were the dominant economies, and they dominate the governance structures of these organizations. They're no longer uh, exclusively dominant. Uh, uh, China has a larger economy than, than most of Western Europe. It has an economy that's approaching that of the United States, although it's, it's still significantly smaller. Um, uh, but it certainly, uh, it, it, it certainly should enjoy a role in these organizations that's greater than France or, or Britain or Germany um, based, on its, uh, based on its importance and its capability of contributing positively to the global economy. Um, uh, and making those adjustments is difficult. And what happens if, 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 you, if China is not accommodated in this regard, if they're not allowed to assume uh, responsibilities commensurate with their capabilities, um, uh, they'll go their own way. They've already done that with respect to their own Asian Development Bank, which is, which is uh, uh, set up as a, an international bank with many members, including a number of our NATO allies, uh, but China has uh, the most important position on its board, and China contributes the most money to its funding. Um, and this is in competition with the Asian Development Bank, which is dominated by Japan and the United States, and which hasn't adjusted itself to Chinese. So we could see um, uh, this. Uh, another, another example would be the, uh, the, the trade negotiation that we're currently engaged in, the Trans-Pacific uh, Trade Pact, um, which has been concluded and which uh, will go to the Senate for, or to the Congress for uh, ratification uh, uh, sometime this year. Um, uh, now, at the moment, that doesn't include China. Um, and in fact, it's being sold domestically explicitly as a way of uh, not combating, would be overstate, but competing if successfully mm -hmm. with China by creating a, a trade zone that China doesn't belong to. But one of the reasons China doesn't belong to it is it, it wasn't ready to join it. Um, at some point, it may be ready to join it. It hasn't uh, taken a position one way or the other as to whether it will join it. Um, it's structured in a way that China could join it, and we will face a decision at some point, if China expresses an interest in joining it, whether to allow it into this uh, regional trade association. So those are some of the examples. Um, before we turn it over to the audience, I might I think ask you, have you a, a question couple for of me, questions right? because, you know, <laughs> fair is fair. <laughs> there's a chapter in uh, in this opening volume that covers um, uh, defense programs, defense budgets, and the adequacy thereof. But you've also co-authored uh, a, a separate volume which expands on that chapter called America's Security Deficit. What do you mean by that? Well. It's a. I think. Thank you for the for the question. You know, as we were working through this project and thinking where we are in terms of our meeting our national security requirements, we were reflecting on the administration, uh, the choices the administration has made, and where we're going. Uh, in 2012, the Obama administration led a large strategy review that had really uh, a couple key conclusions. One was that 
Europe was largely stable and at peace. Uh, the second conclusion was that we could end the wars in the Middle East and withdraw. And the third was, which was the headline from that review, was that that would, that would then position us to pivot to Asia. Well, the pivot to Asia has been underway. There's some debate about how much, but in terms of, and the pivot was about reinforcing our security position there, in, in very much in line with what Jim was describing, that we have these larger goals, but reinforcing our security and position in Asia, very important to us. But the first two assumptions, as we know, have changed rather dramatically. The situation in the Middle East, we decided to leave the wars in the Middle East, but the wars didn't end, and so we're now back involved in them. Um, the situation in Europe in which we um, uh, had determined that it was stable and at peace, and by the way, a position that was reflected in the Bush administration as well as the Obama administration, that now has changed rather fundamentally with Russia's behavior in Ukraine, with Jim's description of now a growing perception of the vulnerability of some of the newest NATO members. And so our view when we talked about a security deficit is we now find ourselves operating militarily in terms of having uh, meeting security commitments in three critical regions, Europe, the Middle East, and East Asia. Yet our resourcing for that has really been focused on the idea of a pivot. Not that we were going to end our involvement in Europe, um, not that all, all of our security commitments in the Middle East were going to be over, but there really was assumption the wars would end in the Middle East and that we wouldn't have to reinforce in Europe. And so our look at this, we now find ourselves involved in these three critical regions, but we don't yet have the resources associated with doing that. So that, that now has come in terms of impacts on the readiness of our forces, on the modernization of our forces, and debates about the overall size of our forces. You're hearing that in the political debate. And what we chose to do what is identify what those choices might be, that you could accept this deficit, but that means that you would then have to accept that we would play a smaller role in some of these key rural, uh, areas of the world, or you could increase your commitments and increase your spending so as to be able to have the right resource levels uh, for the needs that we're seeing in these three critical regions. So that really was what behind our notion of a security deficit. Now, now in that study, you looked at alternate defense budgets that represented somewhere between 2.3% of GDP and 2.9% of GDP. Um, even the highest of those is, you know, near the lowest point of uh, near near the lowest point in defense spending over the last 50 years as a proportion of GDP. So my, my question is, what are the main variables between 2.3 and 2.9 percent right. of GDP? What do you buy for that extra 6.6 percent? Right. Uh, uh, and um, and 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 is even that enough? That's so. Let's first off begin by taking a small number and translating it into a big number. So when we talk about a half a percent of GDP or six tenths of a percent of GDP, we're talking about you know gross domestic product that's in the area of about seventeen trillion dollars. So when we take half of that, we're talking at about of half of one percent. We're talking about eighty-five to ninety billion dollars a year if you look at the growth in the GDP. So that's not an insignificant sum. So what would we do with an, you know, in that range with another 85 or $90 billion a year in defense spending? One is we looked at readiness, uh, the wear and tear on the forces that have been involved in the Middle East over the last 15 years has been very significant. And although you would say the forces have been ready for the missions they've been accomplishing as they've been deployed to the Middle East, 
they aren't ready for a whole variety of other missions of which they might be called upon. If you're thinking about uh, missions that would be in the Far East or deployments to Europe or other kind of thing, other kind of activities, getting those forces ready that requires a major, you know, major investment. Second, we were looking at the modernization of the forces, and particularly in some areas like our nuclear modernization, there is a need for the replacement of some key elements of the nuclear forces, particularly the the uh, uh, submarine force that carry the uh, uh, strategic missiles, and. Although that is a planned activity in, in, the, in the current, the Defense Department plans on the replacement of those forces, it hasn't been a funded activity. And so if we intend to have a survivable element of our, of our nuclear triad, that is the submarine force, we're going to have to have the money for that. And so we looked at those budget requirements. Modernization generally of the armed services is in need. The way the Defense Department plans, it generally likes to be modernizing forces uh, among the maritime services and the ground services and then the air forces, and it sequences this over time. But we've de- because of the wars of the last 15 years, because of our involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've deferred much of that modernization. So we now have four services, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps, all needing modernization at one time. That comes at a very significant cost. Now, we weren't trying to solve all of that with this other half percent of the gross domestic, of half a percent of the gross domestic product, but we did think we could make real progress. We could make progress on the readiness of the forces. We could make progress on the, on, on the, the, the reinvestment in the nuclear forces that's going to be required and make progress more generally on the modernization of the four services that are really look, facing real wearout rates. So this gets back to the issue of the strategic de- deficit. If we think we're going to be involved in these three regions, uh, that is Europe, the Middle East, and East Asia, and we think we're going to maintain these security commitments, then we believe that more resources are going to be necessary. And if you look at the volume, you'll see how we array those choices and what those choices might be. Good. Well, I think we probably ought to yeah, why don't we open turn that? it over to the audience. My name is Jay Hellman. I was a consultant at RAND back in 1969 when I was in graduate school at MIT. Right. And I wrote a paper about privacy and information systems, which today <laughs> is one of our big problems. Yeah, we should take that out. Yeah. Ahead of the curve. <laughs> it's, uh, in my business, that's a problem I've suffered because as a businessman, you're supposed to be pretty close to timely as opposed to be 30 years ahead of your curve. <laughs> But my my question, I I appreciated, Jim, your comments at the beginning about the times today are actually not quite as bad as many people think they are. Um, Ironically, before 9-11, I was actually thinking that the world was on the brink of a really calm and stable period where we would sort of be embracing technology change, improving education, improving standards of living, and the like. Uh, And then when 9-11 happened, statistically, it was actually insignificant. I mean, even losing 3,500 or 5,000 people, we lose 40,000 people a year in car crashes. But the perception was much greater. So can you talk a little bit about perception versus reality? I think people in general have... Uh, you know, a difficulty in risk perception, clearly. Um, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, the, the, the recent attacks in San Bernardino and, uh, and a couple of other uh, smaller uh, incidents um, here in the United States 
have led to a heightened concern within, and, and not an unreasonable concern about um, about terrorist, homegrown or imported terrorists. But um, one statistic I read was that you're 5,000 times more likely to get shot by someone in your family or some common criminal in this country than you are to be attacked by an international terrorist. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, issues of, of gun control um, are far more uh, important than, uh, than, than uh, you know, building walls along the border to stop international terrorists if you're worried about reducing the casualty rate from uh, intended violence. Um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, it's, I mean, the statistics on, on conflict and violence do sustain your view that the world was getting more peaceful. And that trend has actually continued beyond 9-11, although it has slowed. So um, really, since the end of World War II, interstate conflicts are almost unheard of. They're extremely infrequent. Uh, uh, and there have been no uh, conflicts between major powers, since, at least since the Korean War. Uh, uh, and of course, these were all too frequent in previous centuries. Um, most wars have been civil wars, um, uh, and uh, and even there, the pace and frequency of these has been diminished. So, at the end of the Cold War, there were forty civil wars going on around the world, um, and and that number has been significantly reduced. Despite what's going on in the Middle East, it's still been reduced. Uh, I think the the flow of refugees we're seeing today. And, uh, and the UN has announced this is the largest flow of refugees since they began to count them. But, but the difference is that it's, it's the ease of transportation and movement and communications that exacerbate this. So that it's not that there are more people being displaced. It's that the, those people can get further. Um, it, you know, seven million people fled Afghanistan in the 1980s. They didn't get any farther than Pakistan and Iran. Now they're all getting to Europe. Uh, and so it's become a much more acute problem. Uh, and, and this is generally true. People used to be displaced within their own country or in the immediate neighboring country. Now they're capable of buying a ticket or paying a smuggler and going 5,000 miles. Um, and so the world has become smaller and more globalized in that sense. And it's created a sense of insecurity and uh, and. Uh, and uh, that, uh, that, as you and I have both said, sometimes um, is exaggerated and isn't an accurate measure of the real risks involved. Good evening. My name is Michael Brown, and I spent 2012 to 2014 uh, working out of the U.S. Embassy in Singapore. I'm with Rand as a fellow for DHS. Mm -hmm. In the middle of that time frame between 2012 and 2014 was sequestration. So our foreign partners look at that as creating in a, a situation that has direct impact on, on them. Um, my question to you is, how do we manage perceptions that the pivot is on, which having lived there, I felt that it was, but our partners still see the United States being drawn into regions outside of Asia, Middle East primarily, and how based on your experience, would you manage those perceptions with our Asian friends um, as we look as we look forward? Um, 
Well, one answer, of course, is to fund the budget at the, rec at the levels uh, Andy and others are recommending, which will uh, ameliorate that problem somewhat. Um, I think that, uh, that the Asians may be complaining that we're disengaged and not present. I can tell you that the people in the Middle East are complaining even more heavily um, uh, that, uh, that we're not paying enough attention, that we're not doing enough to stop the war in, uh, in, in Syria. Uh, or in Iraq or in Libya. Um, so there's a general you know, perception, um, which partly is a, is a reaction to American policy. I mean, Obama got it elected on a retrenchment ticket. People felt we were overextended. Uh, they wanted to pull back, um, and he did this. And, and the individual steps he took were individually popular. So the decision to withdraw from Iraq, the decision to draw down dramatically in Afghanistan, the decision not to go into Syria, the decision to limit our engagement in Libya. These were all individually popular decisions. The problem is the American people just don't like the result. So they wanted a cheaper, less risky uh, foreign policy, but they didn't want to lose influence. And, and so you're seeing a domestic reaction to that, and you're seeing an international reaction to it. And, uh, and it, it seems likely uh, that uh, that both of the candidates in the upcoming election will run to the right of Obama on, on, on national security issues, unless Bernie Sanders ends up getting elected, chosen. But other, all the other candidates are somewhat to the right of, of Obama on these issues. So the next administration may change a little bit. Um, uh, but I also, uh, on the pivot to Asia, I mean, I have a, I, I have a somewhat different view than, than others here. You know, my view was that the attraction of pivoting to Asia back in 2011, when we originally did it, was we could pivot from the most violent region in the world to the most peaceful. Wow, wasn't that great? You know, Asia hasn't had a conflict since 1979. It doesn't even have a single civil war. It's the only region in the world that doesn't have significant insurgencies. You still got big insurgencies in South America. Uh, you've got lots of insurgencies in, uh, in Africa. And of course, you've got them all over the Middle East. What a great region to pivot to, you know? Um, uh, so, I mean, I think the pivot was uh, ill-conceived, and it certainly was bad uh, messaging, if you would, um, uh, uh, which is not to say that we need to take appropriate steps to maintain our position in Asia, but I think we just created expectations which were unrealistic because it seemed politically expedient at the time um, to make that shift and to justify the withdrawal from the Middle East. Hi, my name is Matt Hoover. I'm a PRGS grad from a couple of years ago. Um, having recently come back from living and working in Africa for a couple of years, I was curious how Africa fits into this, specifically East Africa. Um, well, I think to some degree the, the, the challenges from the violent extremism of the East have spread all the way to East Africa. Uh, Al-Shabaab is an Al-Qaeda affiliate, um, and you're seeing particularly in the, sub, the, the Sahel region where Muslim and Christian populations coexist within societies, um, uh, uh, like Nigeria, for instance, um, increasing violence uh, that's uh, stimulated and uh, inspired by, by some of the things that are going on in the Middle East. Um, uh, of course, uh, uh, conflict in, in Africa isn't new. I mean, the African states have tended to be the weakest and the most prone to civil uh, conflict over the last 
60 years, really, since, uh, since the original decolonization period. And again, uh, Africa is on balance more peaceful than it's been um, uh, over most of the post-colonial era. Um, uh, you don't have massive genocides of the kind you had in Rwanda. Um, you don't have civil wars of the sort that you had in the Congo at its absolute peak. Um, uh, and you don't have the, the, the anti-apartheid conflicts that you had in Angola and Mozambique and Namibia and South Africa. Uh, and the Africans have actually become more capable at peacekeeping and, uh, and have actually stepped up and uh, addressed many of these problems largely on their own with, without a great deal of external assistance. Uh, the African Union efforts in Somalia is a good example where the Africans are taking the lead in, uh, in the kind of nation building and, and uh, stabilization efforts. Um, I, Africa obviously is fairly low on America's list of priorities for obvious reasons, it's far away, it's, it problems don't tend to impact us as much as uh, others, it's a poorer region. Um, and so for all of those, it, uh, it, it gets less attention than the other regions that we've been talking about so far. Back to the pivot, Thanks. my name's Dan Davis. Um, and China, much to the chagrin of some of our allies in Southeast Asia, has been setting up a physical presence along the nine-dash line. Um, are we likely to do anything about it? And if so, what? Well, I think we're going to continue to challenge any uh, claims that aren't consistent with uh, the uh, International Treaty on Law of the Sea, which, of course, we haven't ratified and don't adhere to ourselves. Uh, or, we, or we adhere to it, but we've never ratified it. Um, but. Um, uh, so we'll continue to sail through those waters and fly through those uh, airspace. Um, the Chinese aren't the first to settle some of these islands. Some of our allies did. Uh, the Chinese have certainly done it in a more substantial way. Uh, and uh, the claims of, uh, of some of our allies seem to be better. We don't actually take a position on any of those claims. We don't regard those islands as not Chinese. We regard them as uh, disputed and argue that those disputes ought to be settled. Um, uh, as to whether we're going to um, you know, occupy one of these islands and throw the Chinese off, the answer is no. So um, we'll continue to, to, to visibly dispute uh, uh, any claims that interfere with the right of flying and navigating through what we regard as international waters and airspace and uh, and we'll see what the Chinese do. So far, they've just protested. When I spoke earlier about uh, modernization efforts, though, of course, one of the areas that I think is, is of keen interest in, in the Defense Department is the ability to maintain a viable force in that region. And that is going to require some improvements in capabilities right. over time. And so you know, investments in various aircraft types, investments in, in our surface combatants, combatants, and investments in the undersea force I think Jim has this exactly right in terms of the political dimension, but the military competition that's underlying some of this is really, it's going to play out over a long period of time. Hi, Ross Johnson. Um, Andy, question for you. If um, we think about expanding, increasing the defense, def def uh, defense spending by um, a half a percent of GNP or more, how do we pay for it? Um, increased revenue, uh, in increase the deficit, 
uh, take it away from um, discretionary spending? How, how, how do we pay for it? Well, you've described sort of the range of choices, right? So um, you All can – increasing revenue means increasing your, your revenue base. That means higher taxes. Um, you can borrow. Um, the borrowing option, I think, is much less available now because the last administration borrowed considerably to pay for to pay for that debt. So we have this issue of, of you know, very substantial deficits. Um, or there are, you know, other areas of discretionary spending. The, the numbers themselves, not frank, not that difficult to get at that size number. And when you're looking at kind of budget trade-offs and you're, you know, and, and you're looking at, at the federal budget overall, the politics of it, much trickier, much trickier. So, you know, we nearly had a budget deal in July of 2011. Um, and in, in that was uh, then with President Obama and Speaker Boehner. They were uh, it came very close, but what the issues that divided them were, although small, um, there were ones that couldn't be resolved, and that was trying to get issues of national security spending up some, but the president wanted to do that without having to reduce some of the domestic programs and so forth. And the budget deals that we've faced since then, very similar, you know, the the the, the, the magnitude of the spending um, has not been as large as the politics in terms of where, where the funding is going to come from. And uh, I, don't, I don't know that I see a good answer to that anytime soon. I mean, they're, they're, you know, what Jim was alluding to earlier in, in terms of our discussion is that the, the center that formed the consensus in this country for a very long time, certainly throughout the Cold War and, and arguably for the first you know, 15 years or so in the, immediate, in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War has been eroding. It's been eroding. And so trying to get to a political consensus on that, I think much harder than actually finding the money itself. I should add that there'll be a new volume of our series coming out that looks at the economic aspects of national security and American grant strategy and will address issues of deficits, taxation, uh, 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 income disparities, um, and a lot of the other um, uh, economic uh, challenges uh, that, um, that, have to, that have to be addressed as part of a national security strategy. I think we had the author here, is that right? Yes, Howard is back here. Yeah, Howard Schatz. It's a terrific, terrific piece of work that Howard did. Jan, uh, Jan Osburg, I'm an engineer in uh, Rand's Pittsburgh office. Yeah. Um, and I want to stay with the modernization topic, um, kind of the flip side of the coin of, you know, where to get those notional $90 billion from uh, is how to spend it. And as an engineer, right next to objective analysis, I also care about efficiency. Um, so my concern is that, you know, if there's a lot like that size of money involved, then a lot of people, you know, just want to get their slice of that doing business as usual. Um, I guess as long as RAND has existed, we have talked about improving the acquisition process. But where do you see in the current environment uh, opportunities for improving the acquisition process, making that extra money or even the current money go further? Yeah, the, of course, RAND is spending a lot of time on that. And, and it, it's a, those that have, people have spent careers looking at this issue, I think very challenging. I mean, one of it, one of it, uh, the challenges here is the the rate at which we're replacing some of our key systems. It's it, where it was, at one time this was, you know, um, uh, once or twice a decade, 
Now we're building systems that are lasting decades. And so when you're looking at the technologies that are associated with those, there's always a reach to include the, you know, the most leading edge technology that's available, knowing that you're going to be invested in this for a long period of time. There, people have been looking in various ways in which you might be able to break that down into components. This is an engineering challenge in which maybe, you know, if we're talking about an aircraft where the airframe itself is an investment, but the propulsion system is something different, and of course the avionics, the electronics that fit it are something altogether different itself, and that you might look at components in various ways and uh, can think about this, how it could be more modular. The other thing that we learned, and it seemed counterintuitive, is there is a, there is a, 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 a desire to have joint programs, joint efforts, that joint, that is to say, among our services, that if you're going to fly an airplane, why wouldn't the Army, Navy, and Marines, I'm mean, not the Army, the Air Force, uh, Navy, and Marines fly the same airplane, or as common an airplane as you can? And that was the, the largest aircraft purchase that in our history is, is beginning right, is underway right now. This is the F-35 program. That was a joint program. Uh, we did an, an analysis that was really looking at maybe that wasn't the best uh, approach to this. Maybe if these had been sever separate service programs because of their unique requirements, the marine airplane has to be able to, to, to fly in, uh, and, and um, take off vertically and land vertically. The Navy version has to be able to land on a carrier, on an aircraft carrier at sea, which means it has structural requirements to be able to land and, and, uh, on, on an aircraft carrier that is, you know, and it's being arrested by cables. Whereas the, and the aircraft variant is going to land on more conventional runways. Our analysis of that suggested, and it was, I, I thought it was a terrific piece of analysis, what we used as, as our, as our uh, comparison was the Air Force's uh, F-22 program. Um, and it's legendary for its cost overruns, um, partly because it was the first stealth fighter. There were a lot of challenges with getting that into production. So we used all the cost growth assumptions associated with the F-22 and applied them as if we had three independent programs. And the conclusion was it would have been cheaper to have separate service programs rather than joint ones. So there are any, any number of ways that we can be looking at efficiencies. And it isn't always clear that, you know, that what seems like a common sense answer, have a, you know, a single aircraft or a single aircraft platform for all three services, is going to be the best result. The place I haven't talked about, and it's the most politically charged in terms of efficiency, is infrastructure. We're over-invested in terms of base infrastructure in this country. We have far more than the military services need. But, of course, that involves local politics in terms of closing those, that jobs are involved with that and various things. And, you know, it will take courage from a political leadership. But if you want to save some money, you're not going to save enormous amounts, but if you want to look for savings, uh, I'd be looking at the infrastructure as well. I'd be looking at efficiencies in the acquisition programs. Uh, my name is Tim Ryan. I'm a regulatory consultant and a teacher. My question relates to education. Uh, in the, the role or in the, the agenda of enhancing strategic preparedness, I would assume would call upon bringing in recent graduates from the uh, science, technology, engineering, and math fields, where currently U.S. universities, colleges, etc., uh, women are choosing other uh, areas to study, and men aren't going on to university study. Um, and so what's been happening is these programs departments have more um, international students 
uh, I think it was 2013, 2014 academic year, 55% of doctoral students in physics were international students. Would you see that move to relying on international students in these fields to be a problem with enhancing strategic preparedness? Um, well, I mean, a lot of those international students end up staying. Right. Um, a fairly significant proportion. Um, and of, of those that stay, many of them become American citizens and, uh, and gain security clearances and come to work at RAND in some cases um, uh, on, on sensitive uh, national security uh, projects. Um, so I, I don't, uh, I mean, I think, you know, I'd, I'd separate the growth in international students from the lack of growth in, uh, you know, domestic American students because I don't think that one are crowding the others out. If more people wanted to go to the schools, the schools would simply enlarge in most cases. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, I, I don't have a view as to whether you know the Pentagon or the defense industry are finding it difficult to recruit. But I do think that, uh, that the fact that the American um, uh, higher education system is considered the best in the world, the most competitive in the world, that 19 of the 20 best universities in the world are in the United States or, or, or something close to that. I, I think that's a major source of American strength, including ultimately in the national security area. So Jim, Andy, thank you very much for uh, a very informative. you for all the different ways that you support RAND. It's, it's absolutely a community. There's so many facets. It's a complex organization. And our alumni, uh, active uh, folks, all support RAND. So thanks to everybody for all that you do. Thanks for also coming out tonight. Uh, we, we try to have two of these here each year. So look forward to seeing all of you again. I hope you can come back in the fall. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.